Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Amen. Well, as, kinda, as Kyle already uh, kind of introduced, we're continuing our series in Hebrews 11 this morning entitled By Faith. By Faith. If you are sort of new to the Bible, maybe Hebrews 11 would be a bit new to you as well. It's a chapter that Kyle mentioned is commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith. It's a chapter that features these great exploits and even um, stories of faith uh, of God's ancient people from time past. And it's, it's, it's a chapter that's written in a larger setting of a pastor trying to encourage some discouraged Christians, uh, a community of Christians that are facing pressure both outside and within to draw back in their faith, to give up. A moment that requires a need for greater faith, they are being tempted to start to fall back and drift away from faith because of how hard it is in the culture, making it harder and harder to to follow God without facing some kind of consequence for that. And so they're struggling. And so it's into that culture that the author of Hebrews is seeking to inspire faith calling them to a life of faith, reminding them that the just shall live by faith, that the only way to live as a follower of Jesus is by faith. It is the way we've been saved to live. It is the calling we have on our lives. But so much more than just telling them to do that, hey, live by faith, he's inspiring them into that kind of life by giving them these examples of faith from time past. So each week what we're doing is we're looking at a different sort of uh, feature of faith from these different characters uh, out of the Old Testament. We're studying the new with the old. We got a whole handful of characters. And this morning, as we, as we make our way to verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 11, we have the most potentially famous of them all. All right. We have the late, great Noah. Some Noah. All right. If you'd like to take notes, you can write this down as a title today. Each week, we're looking at the different kind of um, action of faith that these characters took. And this morning, we want to look at how, by faith, Noah served God. In fact, let's read it. We're going to go back and forth uh, from, from and to this verse. But Hebrews eleven seven points out Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So so this is our foundation. This is our base that we're going to build off this morning. The focus is on this guy that we have all likely heard of, Noah. Now, just kind of taking a step back, uh, there's no Old Testament story that's being expounded on here. There's just one verse given to these readers because most likely, most probably, every person that's learning and, and, and receiving this letter knows the story of Noah. Um, now, we can't assume that in this room today. Uh, there, there may be really, I would say, two main reasons why we need to uh, refresh ourselves on the story of Noah. The first would be, un, uh, if, in case we are unfamiliar... Maybe you're so new to the Bible that you're like, I don't know a Noah, all right? And so we're going to help you out. There's more puns and dad jokes to come. Okay, strap in. All right? 
But if you don't know a Noah, you will know a Noah before you leave here, okay? Um, so that could be the first thing, uh, uh, unfamiliarity. I think the greater issue that uh, if not all of us are facing as we come to the st- study on Noah today is not a lack of familiarity, but um, too much familiarity. Evan Almighty, anybody, okay? Good, good. I've watched that movie several times for extensive research uh, for this Bible study this morning. Um, Steve Carell plays a great Noah archetype, I guess. But anyway, um, you know, whether it's, it's Evan Almighty or I think Darren Aronofsky attempted some uh, Hollywood feature of this, I think in around 2015, 2014, starring Russell Crowe. I'm not sure if you saw it. It looked like seeing, I never saw the movie, but the trailer made it look like it was going to be an epic uh, film. Um, and from what I've heard, it was kind of the, uh, the director's own interpretation. Nonetheless, like even if you haven't seen Michael Scott play Noah, or even if you haven't seen uh, some Hollywood version of it, uh, the biggest issue may not even be Hollywood's version of Noah, but even your own church's upbringings with the story of Noah. Um, growing up in church, I remember there was a Noah play at, at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. And I was, a, I was a part of the, the Christmas pageant, and there was a Noah character, and it was played by the guy who led worship for us this past Wednesday. He would be so happy that I'm telling you this. Um, Bobby Bemis is uh, an incredible friend of mine, an incredible man of God and worship leader. And I remember in, in the play, Noah was Jamaican. I don't, he wore like, he had like, it was probably inappropriate, but like he was up there, and he was like, yeah, man, I'm building the ark, man. And like that's, that's the earliest memory I have of Noah, and I'll have to text Bobby after and just say, I just can't even read this story without thinking of Bobby Bemis with a Jamaican accent. So I've got my own baggage with the story of Noah. I'm sure you do as well, whether you realize it or not. And so something that's so important for us to truly learn from what God's word has to say to us with with a story like Noah is um, is to sort of place aside our assumptions and what's been caught in our understanding of a story like this and see if we can do our best to look at it with a fresh lens, to see if we can look at it in a, in a sense as if we've never read it before and really pay attention to some of the details that often get left out that really help paint a more clearer picture of what's going on, all right? So, so let, let's do that, okay? Genesis chapter 6. Why don't you turn there now? Genesis 6. We're going to get some context in Genesis 6. And then what we're going to do is come back here to Hebrews 11 and, and focus on what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us about Noah's faith uh, in the story. All right? But some context here, some backdrop. Genesis 6. Um, and in my own kind of like packaging of the chapter and the context, I've come up with sort of three main parts to what's going on here prior to a flood entering the earth and, you know, Jamaican Noah coming on the scene. All right? Um, there's, there's really three main parts of, of, of the narrative unfolding here. Uh, and the first part, you can write this down, and we'll see it there in Genesis 6, is man's sinfulness and corruption. This is the first part uh, of really where this story picks up. Uh, this is not the beginning of the Bible story, but this is unfortunately where things have ended up. We've actually, since studying this series in Hebrews 11, been following the, the, the short narrative. I mean, we're only in chapter 6 of the, the beginning book, Genesis. And we've just been watching the contrast 
between what God created mankind for, the hope and the vision for man to partner with God, for the, the flourishing of the human population and the world and the glory of God, this great potential for a beautiful world and a beautiful partnership is marred by sin. And so that's kind of the, the, the condition of the created order now. The world itself, humanity itself, beautiful, made by God. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's called good and very good. But the, the language that describes the fall of man is, I think, helpfully understood as, as maybe like a beautiful work of art that has graffiti over it. You think of like the Mona Lisa or, or Van Gogh, something just beautiful in its design, but is marred and vandalized by, by sin. And, and so it, it's like there's, a, there's, a, there's signs of beauty, but the beauty is being overshadowed by brokenness. The beauty is being overshadowed by corruption. And, and when you read Genesis, that's really what, by the way, the whole book of Genesis is mainly about, sort of like the decay and downward spiral of the human race through sin. Some people have, you know, a lot of issues with the book of Genesis because of the kind of things that the people of God would be doing and that the Bible would be including. Like, I thought this was a holy book. What's up with Lot and some of the stuff going on there? And Abraham and all these other guys. Like, like what's going on? Aren't these people of faith? You know, the, the book of Genesis is not a book that's there to condone brokenness. It's there to be honest about how sinful humanity has become. And how dangerous things get and how corrupted things get when we turn away from God. You know, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't give us rose-colored glasses to kind of just, you know, wipe away our, our frustration or, or even the pain that we feel about the sin in this world. The Bible's like, take an honest look at life without God. Here it is. And it's messy. It's ugly. It's shameful. It's Adam and Eve trying to cover over their shame. It's their children, one of which kills the other. After Cain kills Abel, you have this guy named Lamech, who's, who's just a notoriously violent man in his generation. And you just, if you follow the thread, if you follow the narrative, this is what's happening. A downward spiral, the snowball effect of sin and brokenness that leads us to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now there's interesting language used here. The idea of man multiplying, populations increasing. And what Genesis is going to intend to say is, as man is multiplying, so is evil. Man is multiplying. And now also watch the sinfulness and corruption of man begin to multiply. We, we got some Bible interpretation to, to do here this morning in Genesis 6. Okay, let's read this. When they began to multiply, it says, and daughters were born to them, this thing starts happening. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Uh, verse 4, we'll skip verse 3 and look at verse 4, says the outcome of this, this marriage, these marriages of the, we'll come back to this, the sons of God. And the daughters of men, they're coming together in marriage. And the result of this is not that verse, but this verse. That there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These, men were, the might, these were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So you're like, what 
is going on, okay? So interesting passage here. There's a lot of different interpretation of, of the moment here. Remember the context, uh, evil, sin, wickedness, corruption is just running rampant, spiraling out of control to where now you have this condition in the culture where you have the sons of God intermingling and marrying with, it says, the daughters of man. Now, there's two general interpretations of what Genesis is describing here. All right, one that is um, less popularly held and wrong, and one that is, I think, more biblical and accurate. The one that is less held is, is a more natural interpretation of this. It's the belief that the sons of God here refer to those that are living under the, or coming through the line of Seth, the righteous line, the son of God. And they are, you know, um, becoming unequally yoked, you could say, with the daughters of Cain, the daughters of men. And, you know, God is really mad that, you know, Christians are marrying non-Christians. Enough to send a flood. Nah, like, I don't think that's what's going on here. There would probably be, you know, uh, yeah, that, that's not the case. Uh, the other interpretation of this is that it speaks to angelic beings, who the Bible refers to as sons of God in multiple places in Scripture. Sons of God is, is often used as a phrase to describe spiritual beings. And so it's, it's most likely, in fact, the book of Jude talks about these sort of sons of God, these angelic beings, fallen angels, we would call them demons, who have left their natural habitation and dwelling place to, uh, in, with an evil pursuit, cohabitate within man, demon possession, to lead man to perform all sorts of evil. Uh, and, and so it's kind of ambiguous. I get it. There's some detail. There's also not a lot of the Bible doesn't, you know, give like footnotes and commentaries about most of his verses. So we have to use the Bible to understand the Bible. Uh, it's most likely that there is a supernatural thing going on here where, and let's just make this more like understandable and maybe relatable. Culture has so drifted away from God into wickedness, sin, and violence that it's now being um, influenced and infiltrated by demonic forces. And, and there's demonic forces in the culture that are inspiring sexual sin that's demonically influenced. Which is, by the way, like not that far off from what the world is experiencing today with the, the world of human trafficking. Um, with the occult, even, there's violence and sexual practices tied to demonic influence. I, I think it's most likely that that's what you have here. You have, by the way, remember, fallen angels, they're spirit beings. They're not, they're, they're not you know, they're sexless, and they are, they're not embodied. So they, they need to, if you look at when Jesus is casting the demon out of that demon-possessed man in the cave in the Gospel of Mark, they need a host to, to perform evil through. That spiritual uh, um, target needs a vessel to possess in order to accomplish the evil. And so it's like the, the demons are looking and, and culture is inviting them in and saying, come on in. And we're, we're inviting you in to perform whatever spiritual purpose the enemy has. And this is like, man, I wish I had another, you know, 10 hours to talk about spiritual warfare, spiritual oppression for some of us, we're like, yeah, this is, I love this stuff, you know. And others of us are like, what time does this service end? Um, and, you know, and we come from, C.S. Lewis says, you know, you really have two, you know, big dangers today in the church uh, with, with spiritual warfare. You have the materialist and the magician. The materialist, is, like, it's, it's never spiritual 
unless like someone's head spinning around or like, you know what I mean? Or like their voice changes. Then it's oh, spiritual, you know? And then you have the magician where it's like everything's the devil. Oh, it's like spiritual warfare. It's like, no, you listen, you need a nap. You need a good night's sleep. And so we can be all around kind of on the spectrum here. But just kind of keep this in simple terms. The Bible teaches that there is a personal force of perfect goodness in the world. He's the creator. He's God. And there is also a personal force of evil in the world. He's a fallen angel. He's called Satan, Lucifer, or the devil. With him, he has an army of fallen angels. And they exist to perpetuate evil in the world. And not just in kind of the big world of things, but also in in the subtle things of our lives, our individual lives. You know, a lot of people forget that the famous passage in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The context of it is husbands loving their wives and wives honoring their husbands. And I'm going to say this in a second. You parents are going to understand this in terms of spiritual warfare. Children obeying their parents. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood is what it goes on to say. So we can sometimes have these like big ideas of spiritual warfare, but we're talking about an everyday battle. And we're talking about the way that we can find ourselves, listen, not just trapped in addictions and patterns, but the Bible describes spiritual strongholds, spiritual patterns that are being exasperated and infiltrated by an enemy. Now, we have the worst of it here in Genesis. We have a demonically infiltrated and saturated culture that is running amok, that is downward spiraling. This sort of life of promiscuity and this life of godlessness has opened the door wide open for this kind of spiritual oppression. And it's as bad as it could get. So so this is what's going on. This is the the state of man's sinfulness. Uh, I I remember growing up kind of understanding this as like mankind was innocent and the the demons are out here kind of doing their own thing. That's not what's happening here. This is human sinfulness at its worst. Genesis uh, 6 verse 5 goes on to describe that in more detail. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So in theology, this is called total, what? Depravity. Human depravity. Not not utter depravity. That's another theological term that describes basically this idea that you're as bad as you could be. We're not as bad as we could be. The idea is we could always be worse, unfortunately. If you ever found that, you're like, oh, I'm worse than I thought I could ever be, okay? I'm worse. And oftentimes... There's truth to to, to this in our own lives, but there's total depravity here. This is the state of man. Such a contrast to what God created in the human race, such a contrast to what we see in people like Enoch. The fallenness of man, man created for God, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wickedness of man was great on the earth, so much so how great is the wickedness of man that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. What this is saying is that humanity had gotten so spun up in their sin and rebellion that they had gotten creative as to how they were going to sin against God. They started to comprise new ways to be sinful. It's, it's, it's the expression of, of depravity. Verse 11 in chapter 6 
says that the Lord, uh, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. That's another description here. So, like, this is the depiction of this culture that was made in the image of God to partner with God for the good of man and the glory of God. And this is where things have gone. We have joined in the rebellion with the fallen angels, co-laboring um, co, uh, with them against God, wrapped up in sin and rebellion. This is the state of man. Now, I want you to see the next thing. The next thing is God's response and solution. So hopefully just that right there gives a little bit more clarity to what's going on in Noah. Like it's not people who are like, oh, maybe I'll get on the ark, you know, <laughs> like, you know, maybe I'll, maybe. it's like, no, there's, there's a whole culture that is moving away from God so far that they've ended up in a, in a state of demonic possession and control and influence. God's response and solution may surprise you. Verse 5 says, or sorry, verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was... Have you ever read this verse? I don't remember this verse in my childhood studying Noah. The Lord was grieved in his heart. Like, I grew up thinking that God, like, sent the flood, like, this, like, wanton reaction out of capricious anger. Like, you know, you're rebelling against me, Water! But here you get a whole other picture. God is not taking pleasure in the judgment he's about to pour out on sinful humanity. His heart is grieved. Like a parent who's seeing their child run headlong into self-destruction. Do you know this feeling? You're just like, that's not what you were created for. This is not the purpose of your existence. This is so far. And you imagine he's grieved too because he sees in this culture... Of course, in, in a culture like this, perpetuated by this evil, there's always going to be those that are suffering and those that are being inflicted from this great violence. Uh, things are as bad as they could be. This is such an important point about this, to understand that God's sorrow and grief was the motivating factor behind, behind his response. He saddened. He made the earth to be a place where humanity can flourish, but instead... Humanity has turned the world into a theater of violence, demonic activity, and disaster. So, so what is God's solution? Verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man, beast, and creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, this is an interesting phrase that's used twice now. God's like, I'm sorry I did that. Now, God isn't apologizing because he's like, oops, sorry, the whole creating humans thing, sorry about that, you know, you know, cattle and birds, sorry about the humans, okay, sometimes I feel like God could say that, right, like, I say that for myself, I'm like, sorry, I'm here, okay, sorry, but, but here what the Lord is saying is he's, he's kind of stooping down to our level for us to understand what he's sensing, what he's feeling, U using this human language and human experience to say, I'm grieved at the outcome of humanity, I'm grieved at, at what's become, have you ever been there, by the way, have you ever been grieved at what humanity is able to do. Have you ever faced that? And I, I mean both like on the outside and also by looking in the mirror. Have you ever been grieved at your own humanity? Grieved at what you were capable of? Grieved at what you've done? Well, th this is where God is at. And the solution, I no notice this, from the grief of his heart is to bring judgment. Now again, God is not taking pleasure in this flood, angrily pouring out his wrath in, in reactive you know, um, uncontrolled anger. God, from a place of grief in his eternal wisdom, 
Best concludes, uh, concludes that the best way to deal with this evil that is just kind of like spiraling out of control is to stop it in its tracks and to almost push reboot. This is an act of mercy from God's perspective. This is an act of mercy. Uh, one commentator uh, put it this way, the story of the flood is one of God taking merciful action to restrain humanity's ever-increasing and headlong slide into evil. It's God showing mercy by restraining that headlong slide that's just bringing more and more and more and more oppression. It's an act of merciful judgment. Um, and I want you to notice, if we go back to verse 3, God says this. He says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, um, this is an interesting verse. What, what this is saying is, first of all, that God, God's spirit does strive with humanity. This is why we are, by the way, saved by grace through faith today. Because God's spirit, despite our own wickedness and corruption, despite our own proclivity to sin against God, God's spirit has patiently strived with us. It's important to remember this, that you are not beyond the Spirit's love, the Spirit's work, God's love and His grace. Where your sin abounds, God's, God's grace abounds. You are alive at a perfect time to turn to God and be forgiven. Though God's Spirit strives along with man, what this verse is saying is God is saying, because I am merciful and gracious, I will only allow the violence and evil to go on for so long. And God's eternal wisdom, by the way, only, only God knows how to do this well. Um, God knows best, so, so we got to be careful that we don't like, make God subject to our own fallen human notions of what's fair. Well, I think God should have done it. Bit. Oh, really? Okay. Well, man thinking we know best is what put us in this problem in the first place. <laughs> and so there's a sense in which we, we trust that God is he's perfectly wise in how long he strives along man with man. And when the time comes for that striving to cease, that's what this is saying. God's spirit strives along with man in grace. But the duration to which God's striving is, it's limited. It's not permanent. It's not eternal. God will not forever, by his spirit, strive along with man's sinfulness. And we see here, he's like, in 120 years, I'm going to stop striving. That's what happens. In 120 years from this moment, God sends the flood. And the same is true, by the way, today with, with, with the human race. We're in a moment of time right now in history where God is striving along with the sinfulness of man, providing grace and salvation through his son, Jesus providing a, a way to, like Noah, kind of have a fresh start and a reboot and be recreated in him. But I want you to listen to 2 Peter 3, 9, and 10. This is a little extra for you. 2 Peter 3, 9, and 10 talks about a time coming where, where that striving will cease. There, there's another day of judgment coming for sin. And Scripture says that, that God is not slack. He's not, in other words, to say this, God is not slacking off concerning the promises he's made about his judgment. Towards sin, just like in Noah's day, as some count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if you're in here today and you were bought by a friend and you've, you know that you've been walking away from God, you've been rebelling against God, and you, you kind of have this feeling like, you know, if God was real, he, why hasn't he, you know, showed up yet? Where's the judgment? I see, and maybe that's one of the issues you have. You go, there's so much violence all around me. Where is God in the face 
of the suffering? Where is the God in the face of the evil? He's patient with your evil right now. That's where he is. He's being patient. And he's, and he's, he's being long-suffering. And if you're under the sound of my voice right now, the reason why Jesus hasn't returned is because he wants to see you saved. His desire is for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is the language of Scripture, that, that he's not willing that any should perish. Even in those 120 years, the Bible says that Noah goes on preaching righteousness to the culture. Plenty of time to come and turn back to God. But 2 Peter 3.10 says that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. God is not slack. He's not lazy. He's not slacking off. The reason why God has delayed his judgment is not because he's forgotten to show up or he's not good or something else. God has delayed his judgment because he loves you and he's striving along with you and he wants you to be saved. However, there is a day coming where like in Noah's day, that judgment would come. And in Noah's day, it came in the form of something that they had never seen before, the form of a flood. That's what God said. I will destroy all uh, man whom I've created from the earth and the face of the earth. Um, next we get this guy, Noah, who has a special selection, Noah's selection and assignment. That's the next big part of the story here, which again, I hope this is clearing some things up. Uh, the, the flood wasn't this, this like God responding to just simply demonic activity and man was suffering for it. We see the condition of man was as bad as things could be and people were suffering as a result. Man was sliding headlong into sin and evil. God's response to that sin and evil is not just capricious anger. He, he doesn't like react by, he's grieved. He's brought to sorrow. This is so far from what I intended. So God brings merciful judgment. And it's interesting, the judgment that God brings, these floodwaters is what he's going to bring. And, and it's sort of like, it's almost like God is, um, he's created the world. And through, now you have like sin and, and evil running rampant. So now God's going to like decreate the world. He's going to start over. And he's going to return the earth back to its original state, which is chaotic waters. It's like he's going back in time again. But he's going to start over, and he needs a family to do that. He needs a man to do that. This is, this is such an Old Testament narrative thing. God is always like going through another new family, starting with, with, um, with Adam and Eve. Then we have the line of Seth, and then we're going to have Noah here. Uh, then we're going to have uh, Abraham and his family. God, God always seems it's amazing. The Bible is this story of what God can do with one family. That's like what this Bible's about. All the things he can do with just one family. And, and so you have a guy named Noah who's selected. God's going to bring judgment, but, but Genesis 6 verse 8 says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the sweet spot. This is where we want to live. This is where we want to be. This is what we want to be said about our lives, that we find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, we're we're going to see that it was actually Noah's faith that pleased the Lord. It was Noah's faith in God that gave him access into this grace by which he stood. But, but Noah found grace. God selected Noah based on the faith of his life that was displayed through his own character, his own integrity. The Bible says, um, I, I don't think I have a slide for it here, uh, but the scriptures say about, about Noah in Genesis 6 verse 9 that he was a just man, perfect in his generations, and that he walked with God. So he was a righteous man. He lived rightly. It says he was a perfect man in his generations. And that doesn't mean that Noah didn't sin, by the way. That's not what that means. In fact, 
One of the main parts of Noah's life that gets left out in like the VBS stories is Genesis chapter 9. You ever read that Noah story? Good morning, kids. We're going to study Noah today. Anybody know what Noah did? Got passed out drunk naked in his tent? Yes! You got it, little Billy. Okay. That's Noah. Whole shameful scenario that, that plays out in Genesis 9. So this isn't like a sinless man, but in his generation, this is so beautiful. In his generation, he was a shining light. He stood out. He didn't walk and step with the culture. He marched to a different drumbeat. He stood out. His faith is what really identified him. And the Lord selects him. And the Lord comes to him, and God says to him, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, I wish there was more detail in here. Like, did Noah stop and go, Yeah, God, what's an ark? What's gopher wood, right? Like, is that, what aisle is that at Home Depot? I don't know what I'm doing here, okay? It doesn't say that. God's just giving him instruction. Go make an ark of gopher wood. Now, by the way, an ark isn't a boat. It's more like a hollowed-out chest, a box that was going to be built on dry land, and it was going to float. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch to fill all the gaps. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. That's, um, I wrote it down. I don't remember. A couple hundred feet. Can't find it. A couple hundred feet or 300 cubits. We all use the cubit measurement system, right? We know that. Uh, its width was 50 cubits. That's 45 feet wide. And its height was 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark. I love that. You get a window, all right? And you shall finish it to a cubit from above. Some people think maybe this was like an opening for water to come in. Um, and you shall set the door of the ark on its side. You shall make it with a lower, second, and third decks. Multiple decks, it's like a carnival cruise ship. And behold, I am bringing flood waters on the earth. Uh, here you wonder if Noah's going, what, okay, what's that? At this point, rain isn't even a, a, the, the irrigation system of the world. There's like this natural irrigation system coming up from the ground. So flood waters are going to come to destroy from under heaven all flesh. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my, you found grace in my sight. I will, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds of their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take yourself and all the food that is eaten. You shall gather it to yourself and shall be food for you and for them. And so this is like such a great verse. So Noah did. I love that. Okay, I'll build a thing I've never heard of because something's happening that I've never seen. Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Again, so he did. Now, if we had more time, we could go off on all sorts of trails. What's going on here? I'm sure you've got some questions. How does this even work? How is this even possible? What sort of proof and evidence? How does this, how does this um, coexist with science? Um, and there's some great pieces of literature out there on that. There's some, some really great work. You can go in a lot of different directions. You can get into the, the Ararat anomaly, which is the CIA-investigated vessel that's still atop of Mount Ararat that has this, these, these like geopolitical conflicts that are keeping people from investigating it. There's records of that. There's, some, there's a lot of interesting stuff, both archaeologically, both historically and scientifically, about what's happening here. 
But that's not what the author of Hebrews wants us to focus on, okay? The story of Noah is not just for us to go, yeah, I think that worked out and happened. Because at the end of the day, God could perform any miracle. He's God. He created the world by speaking into existence. The thing that we're called to focus on from a narrative like this, with all that's happening, with how God's responding, with who God's selecting, we're to focus on this simple thing. This verse is meaningful. Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Chapters later, Noah, after 120 years, by the way, of, of serving God in this way, it took him 120 years to build this thing. That's a long time. I've been renovating my house for three years, and I'm already done. I'm like, okay, when is this going to be? That's why people hire people to do this, I guess, you know? And so I'm trying to put on a, a pocket door lately, figuring that out. My knuckles are broken, but uh, it's working out. Noah did it for 120 years. 120 years. He serves God obediently. And now we have Hebrews 11:7. 7. Here's what it says about Noah. So here, here's the takeaway that God wants for us from this story. That when we read that, when we see that context, when we see the heart of God in his purpose for providing this flood, when we see God's selection of Noah and the instructions he gave Noah and the, and the faith that Noah displays, that, that's exactly what Hebrews wants us to see, that by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, not yet seen, it says, he moved with godly fear. It's a really interesting phrase. By faith, Noah moved with godly fear. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So, so this is what the feature is intended to be for us when we look at a story like this. We can get distracted in so many things, but if we could just focus in on one thing, Hebrews would say, stop for a second. Whatever the story of Noah has come to mean to you, Make sure that if you're reading it, you're paying close attention to Noah's faith. Noah, in preparing this ark, he models great faith. In fact, that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Look at these examples of faith. Look at these episodes and exploits of people's faith and what they did. Now, there's a few things that we learn from Noah and his faith in this verse. Some application here as we close out, before we close out here. By faith, Noah, there's a couple things about Noah's faith that we can learn from. You can write these things down. The first thing that we want to learn from Noah's faith is how in obeying God and doing this, we see that Noah models a faith first that simply believes. Noah models a faith that believes. A faith that believes. Which you're like, okay, isn't that what faith does, right? So we need to specify what we're talking about here when we say that Noah modeled, in building the ark, he modeled a faith that believes. Um, Noah didn't just believe in God. That's great, to believe in God. It's an important thing to believe in God. He who comes to God must believe that he is. Otherwise, who are you coming to? Okay? So it's important to come to God believing that he is. But Noah did so much more than just believing in God. There's a difference between believing in God and believing God. Believing what he's said. Believing him. Like as you evaluate your faith, are you, are you the kind of person that believes in God? Or do you model a kind of faith that actually lives with this faith that believes God's words? You live out this faith that believes God. Uh, Noah believed God's words that came in the form of a warning. Noah was divinely warned 
and here's the kicker of his faith, of things not yet seen. There had never been a global flood or a local flood up to this point. These are things not yet seen. But isn't it beautiful? This displays that Noah believed God. His faith was not based on what he was seeing. But Noah models faith that's based on what God was saying. Not what I see, but what God says. That's the ultimate source of my faith. I'm believing what God has said. Have you ever had to do this? God, I'm believing what you've said, even when it doesn't line up with what I see. Or how about this one? Or what I haven't seen before. That's a big one. Like, I, I don't know, I would trust God for that, but I've never seen him do that before. So, so then God is then subject to your own experience. And there's a lot of people who have a faith like that. Your faith is, is merely based on what you've experienced, which, by the way, is an unreliable faith because the experience of life is so up and down. That faith won't really carry you, right? That faith isn't anchored to some sort of stability. That faith is, is, is experiencing good things one day, and maybe the next day you pray for that prayer request and it doesn't get answered. You're like, oh, I no longer have faith. I got to answer prayer, right? So, so we got to make sure that, that we, like, like Noah, we have a faith that looks like what 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, that we walk by faith, not by sight. This is the life of faith. It's by faith. It believes what God has said. It's based on the truth of God's word, and not merely the sight of my own experience. And this is, it's interesting because Hebrews 11 says, this is what Noah best and first displayed by serving God. It was an act of faith. And what's really beautiful is how contrasting and different it is from all the times before him. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning, when God creates man in his image, Mankind's inability and refusal, we should say, to trust and believe God is at the very root of all of our problems. It's, it's where the fall of man comes from. Did God really say that? Am I really supposed to believe this is who God is? Am I really supposed to believe the story of God as it's laid out in Scripture? And, and that's where the enemy first began to lead humanity astray. This is, by the way, where we all go astray, is if the enemy can get us to believe an alternative story, it starts there. And usually it's like with a, with like a little sprinkle of truth, but it's kind of like a half-truth, but it's true enough to deceive me. So if it's true enough, then I guess I can believe it, I'll latch on to it, and it's through that deception, it's, it's through that place of faith that, that the life goes in that direction. We see that's at the root of the fall of man. It's at the root of what's wrong with us today. But, but what a great display in Noah's life. Noah believed God. He believed the true story. You know, right now, every one of us are operating and living under the assumption and belief of some kind of story. The story of why you're here. The story of why you exist. The story of what's right and wrong. The story of, of God, who he is, what he's like, what he wants for you. We're all, right now, you're also, you're living under a story of how God feels about you. We all have some narrative. The question is, how do you determine the reliability of the story you're believing? We've all been, you know, led to believe false stories. It turns out it was a lie. It's like, wait, I was believing a lie. What, what, what's that all about? And the way that you find the reliability of a story is the same way you would today, is you check the source. What's the source of the story that you're believing? In Noah's day, the source of the story that he was believing was God himself, the source of all truth. 
See, the scriptures say that there's also an enemy in this world that he perpetuates lies. And so, you know, one of the most important practices that we can employ as Christians on a regular basis and as a regular rhythm in our lives is to make sure that we are aligning and testing the stories we're believing with the story of God, with the story of what's true in Scripture. This was Jesus' vision for the church. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by your truth. Jesus said, Your word is truth. Raise up a generation of Noahs that, that, that don't succumb to the alternative stories of culture, that don't succumb to the lies of the enemy, that don't also, listen, live in faith based on what they're feeling and seeing and experiencing. But Jesus prays, God, raise up a generation of people whose lives are dictated by what's true, who believe the true story, who live by faith in what I've said and not just what they're seeing. This is what Noah models to us. In fact, Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth. John 14, 26, the helper whom the Father will send in my name. I love this. Jesus said, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the truth, the words that I've said to you. So like right now, stop. What story are you believing? What story have you been believing about God, about your life, about how God feels about you, about what's true, about what's not? about what your future looks like. And in your belief, where is there also in your life a rhythm where you are testing that by the power of the Holy Spirit with God's word? Is there in your life this filter you're running things through or are you just kind of basing it off of your own ability to figure things out? If that's the case, let me just say, it'll never be enough. We often underestimate our own ability to be deceived. We tend to think of, you know, the sheeple out there, right? The deceived ones. But not me. I got true Instagram accounts I follow. Because they agree with my politics, okay? So I'm just, here I am. I don't even need the Holy Spirit. I have, I have these online, you know, political pundits that can lead me into all truth. Okay? You're underestimating your own ability to be deceived and you're underestimating the deceiver. We need in our lives an ability, listen, we said this a couple weeks ago, to allow Jesus and his word to disagree with the stories we're believing, to confront what we think is true with what God says is true. And hey, you know what's great? When what God says aligns with what we believe. That's the best. It's like, I'm going to keep believing that. But don't be your own authority. Don't be your own counsel. Noah models a faith that believes God. Now, Noah also models a faith that fears. This is really interesting. A faith that believes, but a faith also that fears. And it's like, what? A faith that fears? What a, that's, like a, that's like a foreign concept of faith, isn't it? By faith, Noah feared. I thought like, you, you know, isn't the expression like, don't be afraid, have faith. So, so what's going on here in Hebrews 11 when it says that by Noah building this ark, not only was he believing things not seen, displaying a faith that believes God, believes what's true, but he's also, notice this, he was moved with godly fear. Now, any other time that this is um, a kind of fear that's not rooted in, in God, it's a bad thing, and that's true. You know, a lot of us, we've experienced that where we were moved by the wrong kinds of fears. You ever been moved by fear? 
You ever, allowed, you ever allowed fear to force your decision or fear to keep you from making a decision? An unhealth, that's an unhealthy kind of fear. The Bible talks about that. A kind of spirit of fear, uh, which is, is paralyzing. You know, what's the expression? It's like analysis or paralysis by analysis. Or you're just like overthinking everything and you end up just not going anywhere. You're moved by that. that that's controlling you. But Noah models a faith that's moved by a different kind of fear. It says he was moved with godly fear. This is what steered Noah's ship, okay? This is what moved his life, you know? It's a good question to ask. What moves me? What moves my faith? What what motivates my life direction and decisions? Well, Noah, he built this ark because he had a godly fear. Now, when it comes to godly fear, fearing God, a lot of, I think, confusion about that. There's really two general kinds of fearing God in the Bible. One is like a, a fear that the unrighteous are called to have. It's kind of heavy, but it's, you could call it like a terrifying fear. Like being afraid of, of, of dying apart from God in my sin, of, of rebelling against God and the consequences of that. You know, there's a verse here that's like not a popular you know, Instagram bio verse. And it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's like, that is unusual. That's not something I see all the time, right? But there's a, there's a terrifying fear that the unrighteous, those who are far, who have turned from God and are running from God, that you should have. You know, God is, is not like your neighbor and your friend that you need to make peace with. I mean, he's the God of the universe. But, but the kind of fear that, that's being described here with Noah, this godly fear, is not a terrifying fear. It's a recognizing fear. Okay, children of God don't need to be terrified of their father. Don't do that. Don't be terrified of your father. In fact, the Bible says that through the gospel, God's perfect love casts out that fear. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a household where you were afraid to go to your father, you, especially if you messed up, right? You're like terrified of going to your father. And the Bible's like, listen, God is your father who's bestowed his love upon you. Don't be terrified of God, your father. Uh, Come to him, all right? When you mess up, don't run from him. In fact, that's a perfect time to run to him. So so the kind of fear that that Noah is living with in his faith and his life that's moving him, it's not a terrifying fear. It's a recognizing fear. It's a reverential fear. it's It's a fear that recognizes the truth of who God is and lives accordingly. So Jesus says, this is how you should think about it. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, no need to be terrified here. This is your dad who loves you, by whom the Spirit, by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Our Father, notice this, in heaven. So there's this, there's intimacy, yet there's also reverence. There's an understanding of who God is. Man, if you read the whole book of Proverbs, you'll get some incredible insights to what the fear of the Lord looks like. You know, Noah is one example of it, of how Noah recognized God. And when you live a life, listen, when you live a life that's primarily recognizing God, that will move you in a way that's different than fearing other things. You know, Proverbs says, for example, that in the fear of the Lord, I love this, there is strong confidence. I love that one. You know, maybe God's called you to do something before and or even now recently and and the thing that he's calling you to do or the person he's calling you to be is coming into conflict with the perspectives and the opinions of man and jesus says don't fear man don't fear man who can kill the body but can't touch your soul jesus says fear god who has the authority over both now and eternity 
You see, in the fear of the Lord, there is this sort of confidence that says, what can man do to me? I recognize God. I don't recognize man above God. In the fear of the Lord, there's confidence. Confidence to do what he's called you to do because at the end of the day, the only person you answer to is God. There's also guidance in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Fear of the Lord is for confidence. It's also for guidance. How many decisions have we made that were made because we lacked the fear of the Lord? How many decisions would be better if we said, God, I want to recognize you here. I want to recognize who you are. Uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians even that as Christians, we're called to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. To live lives that say, you are my father, but you are my father in heaven. You are God. Noah models that. And then lastly, we'll close with this last one here. Noah models a faith that saves. Noah is not just some Jamaican construction worker. Noah, he's a model of great faith in his generation. By building this ark, by being a servant to God in this time, he was displaying faith. Faith that believed what God said. Faith that believed the true story of God's perspective, not the cultural story of man's perspective. He had a kind of faith that was moved by the fear of the Lord, provided confidence and guidance for his steps. And it tells us that as Noah prepared the ark by faith for the saving of his household, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So this step of faith, it's a beautiful picture. It displays a faith that saves. Isn't that beautiful? A faith that saves. You know, in the story of Noah and the ark, you have this incredible picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have this picture of, listen closely, certain coming judgment and condemnation for sin. Because God is just, merciful, and grieved at sin. And through the story of Noah, you have God's, listen closely, provided shelter of grace for the storm of coming judgment. This is similar language to what John chapter 6 says. Or sorry, John chapter 3. This, it's a verse you've never, this is a new Bible verse. You've got to learn it, okay? For God so loved the world, listen to this, that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he also provided an ark for salvation. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God didn't say to the, the, those, the people of Noah's time, I'm condemning you because you didn't get on the ark. You're now not going to be saved because you didn't get on the ark. Now I'm going to... No, no. They were condemned already. The wages of sin is death. The ark is a display of the gospel and the fact that God, in the face of coming condemnation and judgment, God still provides a shelter of grace. Even when he doesn't have to, he does. He provides a shelter of grace, and that ark's a picture of our salvation through, through Jesus himself. Um, here's what Romans 8 says. I love this scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are, and I want you to notice this, 
in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I can't tell you, like in my youth ministry days, how many times I had this verse thrown at me by crazy little high school kids that are running rampant and being crazy, making horrible decisions, and then saying, hey, there's no condemnation, okay? I know the Bible, all right? There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no con. That's not what the Bible teaches. There is condemnation. He who does not believe is condemned already, but there is no condemnation for those that are in the ark, those who are in Christ. It's a display of grace and faith. This is how we are saved. The Bible says that you and I have been saved by grace through faith. It's the act of God's grace in providing a shelter, and that's his son Jesus. Jesus hung and bled and died upon a cross as our shelter and our refuge, taking upon himself the flood, taking upon himself the consequences of our sin to save us, to be a shelter from the, the judgment we deserve. Now, now notice this. What are we called to do? We're called to put faith in Jesus. This is how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. But what is faith? Faith is simply entering the ark. It's putting my faith in Jesus. You go, well, I don't know. I don't really like have the strongest faith. It's like, well, are you in the ark? That's the question. You know, once the door was closed and the floodwaters came, the question, like, even if they were like, I'm just I'm not too sure of this ark. Is it really going to save? I'm kind of doubting. It's like, you're in the ark. And the same is true of a Christian. Are you in Christ is the ultimate question. Have you put your faith and your trust in him for your salvation? This act and this gift of God's grace. And I love this about Noah, that Noah believed and he saved his whole household. Isn't that great? There's so much in scripture about how the decisions and the faith of a father affect their whole family. But just an incredible display here, again, according to, to Hebrews 11, of Noah's faith.